The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. When is the Fed going to pull their heads out of their ass and start lowering interest rates? In today's episode, we're going to be talking about what the Fed is currently paying attention to, what they should be paying attention to, and more importantly, what you need to be paying attention to as someone trying to become an educated home buyer in the 2024 housing market. This is The Educated Home Buyer with Jeb Smith and Josh Lewis. So let's start today's conversation, Josh, by talking about current conditions in the market, why the Fed hasn't really made the pivot that a lot of people out there are expecting. We know for the better part of two years that the Fed kept rates too low, where real rates were actually negative. It, it didn't make sense to save money, right? So go out there, spend all the money you have. That's what interest rates sitting at zero was essentially doing with inflation being at five, six, seven percent at the time. And then now on the flip side, we've got super restrictive policy where the, the real yield is about 2%, actually maybe a little bit higher at, the, at this time. So let's talk about current conditions in the market, Josh, what's happening, why the Fed hasn't pivoted, and then get into the idea of when they're likely to pivot. Like, when are we going to see this break? Because I think we're all expecting it. We're all hoping for it. But we're all sitting on the sidelines going, dude, you know, when is this going to take place? So let's talk about right now and help our viewers become educated home buyers. Absolutely. So the topic of today's conversation is when is the Fed going to truly make a pivot? They have not pivoted. They've stopped hiking, but they haven't pivoted. So we're going to go through, we're going to talk about all the data that they're looking at. We're going to talk about what they're worried about, why they haven't necessarily made the pivot that they should have. And if they are risking repeating the mistakes that they made in 2020 and 2021, just on the opposite side. So starting with that, why hasn't the Fed cut? Going back two years when inflation was up at eight, almost 9%, depending on PCE, CPI, core or not, some of those numbers hit 9%. And you look at that and the Fed has one and only one goal is get that under control as quickly as possible. That's not sustainable, especially after a 10, 12, 15 year period of 2% inflation. We all got really used to that. So even five or six would have been brutal, but eight, 9%, even if it was only for a two, three month period, people were not ready for that. So the Fed rightfully shifted and got really restrictive really quickly. But where are we right now? I think the, the most important number to, to look at, Jeb, you had mentioned here, real interest rates, real Fed funds rate. What does that mean? So we can look and the Fed funds rate is between five and a quarter and five and a half. What does that actually mean? It just means that is the overnight lending rate between banks. So it's an important benchmark that the prime rate moves directly with. A lot of auto loans, credit cards are tied to prime rate. Variable rate mortgages, variable rate loans of many other types are tied to SOFR. SOFR moves almost in lockstep with Fed funds rate. So it's an important number and how that number relates back 
to the level of inflation in the economy tells us a lot. So we saw from about 2008 through 2015, Fed funds was essentially at zero, zero to a quarter. Mm -hmm. And then the Fed came off of zero between 2015 and 2019, trying to give themselves some room. If we had something really negative, a negative shock to the economy, like we got in 2020 with the pandemic. So they did a good job coming off of that. But as soon as we hit the pandemic, boom, back down to zero and stayed there for two years. Zero is not an appropriate number. I think we all can agree on that. We'll go through a portion of the discussion here that says, what is normal? Where should they be? But when inflation is at 2% and you're at zero, like they were for almost all of that time from 2008 to 2010, you have a negative 2% real rate of return. So basically you're offering a 0% return on people's savings, banks savings, but inflation is running at 2%. So you're losing 2% of the power of that money every year. So you always want in a healthy economy to have a real rate of return, meaning that the Fed funds rate is above the rate of inflation. So if we flash forward, Jeb, we got some craziness that during the pandemic, we are currently at positive 2.34. So even though the Fed pegs a range of five and a quarter to five and a half, they publish a number every day of what is actually being done between banks. And that number right now is 5.33. So even though it's a range, call it 5.33. The most recent number we saw for last month, core PCE, the Fed's preferred measure is 2.9%. That gives us a 2.3% roughly real Fed funds rate, 2.4%, 2.5%, somewhere in that range. So is that restrictive? And that's what we're really here to talk about today because the Fed went way too long at zero as inflation now at one point had got so far ahead of them being at zero that we had almost a negative six. We had a negative 5.93 in Q1 of 21, negative 5.88 in Q1 of 22. So literally anyone tying up their money, because that does trickle through into savings rates. You all know this. We all know this. You go put your money in the bank, you got 0% for the better part of the last 15 years. So if inflation's running at 4%, 5%, 6%, you are losing 5 to 6% of the value of your money. So now we've got that back to positive. And the question is, is that too high of a number? Is that restrictive? Will there be negative repercussions for the economy, for individuals, and for you listening to this show as a home buyer or a potential home buyer? And I think on top of that, Josh, part of the the reason that we think that the Fed's going to pivot sooner, they're going to do something differently, react quicker, is because they've even said in their own announcements that we essentially want the Fed funds rate and the rate of inflation essentially in lockstep, at pretty much the same rate. And, and with us currently sitting 2.3, 2.4, the numbers that you just mentioned above that, we know that we have super restrictive policy. And because we know that inflation is still going to continue to trickle down, we've got some big numbers coming on the CPI front. As those numbers drop off, we know inflation is going to continue to move down along with shelter data continuing to trend lower. So if they just stay the same, they do nothing that 2.3, 2.4 probably jumps to 3.3, 3.4% because we're likely to lose a percent on the CPI numbers, on the headline numbers here within the next couple of months. And so they've got to react at some point a little quicker in order to not get so far behind the curve because we've seen the pendulum swing one way, right? With interest rates being at 0% for an extended period of time. Now, essentially what we have 
as the pendulum has swung complete other direction and there is no middle ground. We need that middle ground in order to have a functioning economy, a functioning real estate market. Real estate makes up such a big part of the overall economy. And when you kill things like existing home sales and just everything related to the housing market, you're in theory hurting the economy overall. So let's talk a little bit about that piece of the puzzle, them being restrictive, Josh. And then we can talk about the other side of the dual mandate on top of where they are with rates and talk a little bit about employment as well. I want to underline the most important thing that you said is we went from an extended period of time where they were too accommodative. Forget pre-pandemic, but we all would pretty much agree that no one knew what the heck was going on at the beginning of COVID. So a sort of a shock and awe response from the Fed was probably warranted. But we also got all the way into 2022. About two years ago, they were still buying mortgage bonds. There was absolutely zero need for that. And at the time, we're seeing signs of inflation. We're seeing signs of heating up. And they're telling us, oh, it's transitory. It's just some changes here. It's fine. But there was literally, we were a year past the impacts of the pandemic. We should have had three to six months of strong stimulus and then taper that down. And we should have been done by early 2022. If so, some inflation would have seeped into the economy. We would have seen more than what we had historically for the previous 10 years when it was at or below 2%. And the, the reason for that is we had a period of time where that Fed response, they grew the money supply. The banks, because rates were so low, banks were lending. So banks were accommodative in terms of taking that liquidity in terms of money supply and lending it out. Consumers, on the other hand, were locked at home. So they couldn't readily spend it. You could buy on Amazon, but you couldn't go on a vacation. You couldn't go to your favorite restaurant. So we had velocity really low. So that first year of massive Fed stimulus, they added massively to money supply and inflation went nowhere because the consumer was trapped at home and couldn't spend that money. So for inflation to happen, you have to have an increase in money supply and an increase in velocity. And velocity just means, hey, if I have a business and Jeb comes and spends his money with me, I make a profit. If I just put that in my savings account, there's no velocity, the, the movement of the money stopped. But if I say, hey, I'm gonna go out and go to the restaurant, take my wife to a nice dinner, the restaurant owner goes, hey, I'm gonna go on vacation. And all of that's happening quickly, that's velocity. So we had, Massive increase in money supply, low velocity. So it made sense that once people got unlocked, that we were going to see a spike in inflation because we had excess savings. We've gone through these charts many times on the show. People accumulated a ton of savings while they were trapped at home. And as soon as they got released and were slowly opening the world where they can go back out and spend money, now we have these supply shocks around the world and you couldn't get goods to the market. So we literally had the classic case of too many dollars chasing too few goods. And the Fed should have been able to see this and they should have known that they accommodated and uh, spiked the economy far longer than they needed to. Well, Josh, on top of that, take the stimulus away. Say there was no stimulus and you were just locked at home and you weren't able to spend money. So you're accumulating savings just on your own without being able to go out to restaurants. You no longer have to have childcare for your kids. You no longer have to have all of these things that you would on a daily basis because quite frankly, you can't go anywhere. Therefore, the money's just sitting in your bank account waiting to be spent for a lot of people, right? But then you take the economy and you dump on top of it. People receiving $1,500 checks, $2,000 checks, more than one time, multiple times. And this continued depending on what state you lived in for well over a year. And so now you've dumping additional money on top of all of this 
the Fed funds rate at zero. So that meant interest rates on credit cards, on Auto all the short-term stuff was moving down, right? So your payments got less expensive while all of this was happening. And then, Josh, we unlock it and we say, hey, you can go out and spend money. Now what happens? Well, there's not enough goods out there for you to purchase. Housing was an example of that, but housing set aside, look at all of the little trinkets, the small things, the computer chips, like the chips that went into cars that controlled the full automobile. They, they couldn't get them. Therefore, what happened to car prices shot through the roof. They couldn't get enough cars. Therefore, the used car market went crazy. So it was a trickling effect where people wanted to spend money. They couldn't because there weren't enough goods out there. And then when there were goods, you had people chasing after them, competing against one another. And a lot of you experienced it during the housing market, said, screw this, I'm out. I'm going to wait for a better time. And now we're on the other side of it, but we're still having problems with it because of everything that happened back then. Looking back at it, as you just laid it out, it should have been obvious to everyone. It was obvious to many. And for some reason, it either wasn't obvious to the Fed or they were willing to accept that spike in inflation. So the question we have to ask now, we can look back and we know they were overly accommodative for too long of a period of time. Now, the question we got to ask, are they overly restrictive? And when will they end that or will they remain overly restrictive for too long? Because being overly accommodative led to too hot of an economy, too high of inflation for too long. The flip side, you can push us into recession. You can have disinflation. You can have all the way down to deflation, which deflation is in actually a bigger problem than inflation. It might not be if we had it for a year or two to normalize that spike in prices, but you want to avoid that. So the question then becomes, is the Fed too restrictive and what is too restrictive? So we talked about real rates are at plus 2.3, 2.4%. If you are correct and the, the, we reverse engineer the numbers and inflation drops down near 2%, now we're at three and a quarter, three and a half percent real rates. And historically, many people will point out not too long ago, 15, 20 years ago, that was normal, a positive real rate. So whatever inflation rate is, add two and a half percent to it. And it's a fairly normal number that you would see for Fed funds. Well, if you look at that chart over the last 40 years, Jeb, every ebb and then spike back up has been lower. So we have lower highs. So generally, when you see a chart for 40 years that every time they go back up, it's to a lower high than the last time, you can expect the next time is going to be a lower high. So with that, we shouldn't be back at 3% when the last several times it's peaked at around two and a half and two and a half is normal. 3% is somewhat normal, but we are in for a million reasons that economists could explain to you that we don't want to bore you with here on a podcast, a decelerating economy growth over the next 20, 30 years is very unlikely to be what it was over the last 20 to 30 years. So therefore you should have a lower real interest rate. So if that number should be somewhere in the 2% range, which would still be very high relative to the average for the last 15 years, and you get inflation back to 2%, which everything leads to telling us that you should have a worst case 4% Fed funds rate. So we have somewhere between one and one and a half percent of Fed cuts coming in fairly short order. We talked at the top of the show, January meeting is tomorrow. They're not going to do anything. February, there is no meeting. So the next meeting is in March. It's actually 50 days, 49 days after the announcement here on Wednesday. So what we need to look forward to is what is the data going to tell us over the next 49 days? We can reverse engineer the inflation data, and it is going to tell us that primarily because of shelter costs moderating, other things have moderated as well, 
but we are going to get that number down. And over the next two months, it's going to be approaching 2%, probably not quite there. Over the next six months, core PCE is going to be right there at 2%. So we talked about this in our 2024 forecast, but as recently as December, the Fed Fund's futures market, where investors can go and invest on what they think the Fed is going to do, they were betting that there was going to be 150 basis points of cuts in the next year. The Fed themselves in their Q4 dot plot, which is where they say what they expect is going to happen over the next 12 months, said we're going to cut three times. They believed first cut was going to be like in June. The market said starting in March, they're going to go hard and they're going to cut generally every meeting through to the rest of the year. Well, we've seen those Fed funds futures bets, which went over 80% probability of a March cut, are now about a 46% probability of a March cut. And you say, why is everyone shifting so quickly? And we knew, this is the funny thing, everyone got super bullish on interest rates, meaning rates going lower because second half of October, all of November, all of December, all of the data was supportive. The Fed words were supportive and everything started getting better. But we could look and there were a couple of reasons why the inflation numbers weren't going to be as good this month. We're going to get January payrolls here on Friday, Jeb. And that's another interesting one in that all of the private data. So ADP does their employment report every month, two days before the NFP payroll numbers come out. And we have Indeed.com posting job posting numbers. We've seen those dropping and they track with what anecdotally we're seeing in the market and what we're hearing with big companies. The UPS was the big one today to cut more jobs. We've had Amazon cut jobs, three rounds of big cuts, big job cuts. Yet we get jolts today, the job openings and labor turnover says 9 million job openings and they're expected to be at 8.75 million. Long way of saying, we're gonna get that January jobs data Last year, because of the annual adjustments they do, January, Jeb, was the crazy report that we got to show 500,000 new jobs created. That doesn't jive with anything. That doesn't mean that I believe that the government is cooking the books. They have a methodology that they adhere to, regardless of whether it makes sense and whether it jives with what we're seeing. So other than continued hot employment numbers, we're going to see inflation trending down. And in the next 49 days between this Fed meeting on January 31 and the next one on March 20th, we're going to have inflation continue moderating. We're likely to finally see some cracks in the jobs market. We should do an update on this, Jeb, in, in April. I believe they will cut a quarter point, nothing major. They're not going to signal, hey, we're going to cut 150 basis points but it's going to be the appropriate time to start normalizing this and, and bringing down the Fed funds rate so that our real Fed funds rate is not more restrictive than it needs to be. Let's take a minute here and talk about two things with regard to employment. Uh, a lot of people, when they hear the idea that there's all these job openings, they think that's a negative sign, right? Like, I guess employers can't get employees to work. I mean, that's got to be a bad sign for the economy. So why, Josh, does the Fed when they see higher numbers, why is that more bullish for them? Why are they more hawkish when they see a higher number of jobs on the employment front? Before we dive into that second piece of employment that I was talking about a moment ago, I'd like to take a minute here and ask a favor. If you find any value in the content that we do here, do us a favor and hit that thumbs up. Not only does it show us that you support the work here, but keeps us going in helping you guys become the educated home buyer. And if you like this type of content and want to stay updated on everything in the housing market, do us a favor and hit that subscribe button. So they're looking for a Goldilocks number, right, Jeb? They want 
full employment. So they don't want anyone that wants to work to not have a job, but they don't want to have two job openings for every person that wants a job because then those employers both go, hey, I want Jeb. I'll offer him $100,000 a year. The other employer goes, no, I want Jeb. I'll give him 110. The other guy goes, well, I don't have a choice. I can't find anyone besides Jeb. I got to offer him 120. Now we just had 20% wage inflation over a matter of weeks. So that's their big worry. But we've also been watching that wage inflation data. It went up. It was at high levels. Real wage growth, once you take into account inflation, never spiked. It never hit a, a number that was untenable or that was going to lead to inflation. And I think they're seeing that over time. And the methodology that they follow for the non-farms payrolls, for that job openings, labor turnover survey, when they look at the jolts, they're looking at job postings. We have jobs posted many places around the country in terms of SEO, the same job posted multiple times. Like they're still dealing with 1995 when there was no such thing as an online job posting. And they're trying to apply that methodology today. They haven't updated it. So it is likely to be overstating the number of job openings. And that's why we're not seeing the wage inflation that they so fear. So from that perspective, it, they want full employment. They want everyone that wants a job to be able to have one, but they don't want that labor market so tight that employers have to get into bidding wars for Jeb services. No. And then the second thing when it comes to employment is in the 1970s, I guess it was true, but a lot of people believe the same to be true now is that you needed this massive drop in employment in order for the Fed to pivot, for inflation to come down. What we've seen is inflation has come down, employment's remained stable and the fed has started to turn their stance a little bit and led the market to believe that we see inflation coming down we're starting to recognize it we know it's going to continue to come down in the future but yet we still have stable employment therefore we don't necessarily have to react quickly because we've got this stable environment the likelihood of a recession is lower because of where job openings and the job market is so that's part of the reason that we haven't seen the Fed completely changed their minds because they feel like they've got some time. But Josh, you and I have mentioned this several times. The next three to four months is when we're going to see probably one of the bigger drops in that inflation number just because of what you have coming off and what it's being replaced with. So with that, Josh, where do we stand with the Fed? We know they're going to pivot. You mentioned there's an opportunity for them to, to start as early as March. The market at the moment is disagreeing with you to some degree. They still think that it's not necessarily going to be March now, that, it, that it's going to be June for the first cut. So what can we expect, right? If, if we're a buyer out there in the market, we're a seller out there in the market, do we wait? What are we looking at? Because there's so much information coming at you all of the time. And this information changes. It changes weekly. There's constant reports coming out that are updating different numbers and causing a reaction and probability changes on these Fed cuts. So if you're talking to the buyer right now, Josh, what are you saying? It's a great question because it's the educated home buyer, right? We can get wonky and, and dig into the numbers and what's going to happen next. Who cares? You care because you're listening. You want to know how it impacts housing. If we believe that to avoid a slowdown in the economy, to attempt to avoid a recession, the Fed has to get less restrictive, more accommodative, we will have lower interest rates and that will lead to increased demand for housing. And we don't know that increased supply will come along with it. 
there's a belief that some sellers will come off the sidelines if rates come down. They won't give up their 3% rate for a 7.5% rate, but they might do it for a 65 or a 6% interest rate. But you've pointed out a million times, Jeb, it's really important to remember that 80-90% of sellers also become buyers. So there's no new net supply. A home came to the market, they become a buyer, they take another one off of the market. So I don't know that we're gonna have an improvement in supply demand balance, meaning more homes to choose from and less price pressure to the upside. We have an affordability constraint that's gonna keep us, we're not gonna have 10, 12, 15% appreciation because we don't have affordability high enough. People don't have monopoly money to run out and overpay for houses. So we, we have a limit, but everything tells us that this year will be better than last year in terms of sales volume and similar to last year in terms of appreciation. But we also believe that some of that additional demand is going to come from people being able to afford at a six and a quarter interest rate when they couldn't at a seven and three quarters interest rate. So with that, it's always important to remember, don't ever let anyone talk you into this date the rate, marry the house stuff, because we don't have any guarantees of what is going to happen. But when you dig into all the data, it is quite likely that interest rates are going to be lower later this year and home prices are going to be higher. Not appreciably, but if you buy a $500,000 house, it goes up 3%, $15,000. At current rates, that's $105 more a month. That takes some people out of the market. It may make it uncomfortable for you when you're already stretching to buy a home. So in a perfect world, if you have made the decision that now is the right time in your life, stable job, nice savings, good credit, stable relationship, kids like where you are and they're gonna be good in those schools and now is the right time for you to buy, Earlier would be better than later because you will, if we are correct, which I would say 80% chance that we are going to see lower interest rates later this year than what we see right now, you can always refinance that loan. And we'll do a show specifically on how to refinance without giving up the months and years you've paid on that loan, without adding fees to your loan amount and putting yourself back just to realize a $100, $150 monthly savings. But that would be my take on it. Number one, make sure that you are at the right place and now is the right time to buy. But if it is, if you wait, Later in the summer, you'll end up getting that lower interest rate as rates trend down, but you're going to pay more for that home. People don't understand, Jeb, in, at least in, in California, about 80% of our appreciation happens between Super Bowl Sunday and August. Mm -hmm. So the rest of the year is essentially flat. We, we hit uh, about 7% over the last 30, 40 years in California in terms of annual appreciation, and almost all of that comes between February and August. So... If you haven't bought by August, take your time. Wait, buy before January. But this time of year, you're gonna see that three to five to 7% appreciation that most people are forecasting this year come across the next five to six months while rates are, are trending down. Yeah, so by the time you listen to this podcast, the Fed has already met, right? So we record these about a week in advance. So the Fed has already met. Really high likelihood that there's a 0% chance they did anything. There's a chance that they change their policy, their statement a little bit from being hawkish to a little bit more dovish or maybe not even dovish, but just more, more realistic in what's happening with the economy. But Josh, if I'm out there and I'm a buyer, what am I looking at? What am I paying attention to? Because every single month there's data that comes out, right? We get the same data month over month. Sometimes we get the same data week over week, right? Jobless claims is a weekly thing. 
monthly data is like non-farm payrolls, the ADP report. We get, you know, ISM manufacturing and all of these different things that happen every month. Is that stuff I need to be paying attention to? It's easy to get lost in a market like this because it's polarizing. There's one group of people on the other side saying, absolutely do not do this because of X. There's another group on the other side saying you should absolutely do this because of X. Then there's some people in the middle and like, hey, which is where I believe we are, Josh, where these are the benefits. You should do it when it's the right time in your life. These are the potential mistakes from waiting. These are maybe some potential mistakes if you did it now. But with that said, as a buyer, am I paying attention to this stuff? What am I focusing my attention on? Because we know rates are coming down, but it's not going to happen immediately. It's going to take some time. So quick little recap. The Fed has only two mandates. One is price stability, which means don't let inflation get out of control. And the other is full employment. We've been at what is considered full employment for an extended period of time. The Fed's worried that leads to inflation and erodes price stability. We saw price stability not be present for the better part of the last two years, normalizing the growth rate of inflation going forward to the range. Not the rate of prices where they have grown to, but the growth rate of inflation going forward is in the range of what they want. Now, why have they not already cut? How does that impact when they are going to cut? They have determined, we can judge based off of their actions, that they would rather risk a recession by over tightening and forcing the economy into recession versus loosening too soon and letting inflation get a toehold and sort of resurge. Mm -hmm. That's what happened in the late 70s and early 80s. So almost 50 years ago, and they look back at that and go, that was the worst thing that could happen. So do you believe making? I do not. I, I, I don't. When, when you look at very different times, the things that led to the inflation then very different than now. We've talked about this before. One of my favorite bond experts, uh, economists, super smart, 20 pay levels above my pay grade. It's hard reading his stuff. But Lacey Hunt has all sorts of academic research that says there are reasons why we had a 40-year bull market in bonds and interest rates went to all-time lows. And none of those factors were broken by the pandemic. They were artificially and temporarily suspended by government intervention, massive stimulus, growth of money supply, and then, as we already talked about that, decrease in velocity, then the massive spike in velocity. Let me rephrase the question. Do you believe a recession is worse or inflation is worse? Inflation is worse. And especially when you look at it, there are some experts out there that don't agree with my take on it in that we're either going to go to very low growth or a minor recession. Danielle Martino Booth, I love her data. I read her newsletter every morning. She's convinced we're going to have a bad recession. Most people are in the camp that either we get close to zero growth or slightly negative. So a, a minor recession. So when you look at that as a minor recession, worth it as a trade-off versus inflation continuing at three, three and a half, four percent. I would say yes, but it's a false choice, right? They don't have to choose between you. They've done what they needed to do. Just like they overstimulated and kept it there for too long, they've oversuppressed the market and are keeping it here too long. They could have been cutting in the fourth quarter of last year slowly in measured bits and not negatively impacted the economy. So what should you be looking at? You want to watch the the 10-year treasury. We saw it hit 5%, got back down to 3.8, and we're in the low fours, 4.1-ish right now. As long as it stays below 4.3, that downtrend is intact. We're not likely to go below 
three, 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 four in the next year, but we should trend towards it. So what is the data? What are the things? If you pull up CNBC or whatever your news app of choice is, hit the Google News, you want to look at the inflation data itself. About every two weeks, we get either CPI or PCE. PCE is the Fed's preferred measure, but because the first sign of the spike in inflation two years ago came in CPI, CPI has been traded more. So the market pays more attention to CPI. But for the next two months, as Jeb pointed out, the next three months, and I looked at the numbers really for the next six months, we are likely to see that trending down. Absent a, a spike in things that we're not seeing right now, what we do know is shelter costs have a lag in the way they're calculated and they will continue to moderate already baked into the cake for at least the next six months, if not the next year. And that will take us down near 2% absent other things spiking. So CPI, PCE, in terms of jobs, you mentioned the non-farms payroll, we get that once a month. We get continuing claims uh, for unemployment weekly. We get ADP monthly. So all these things will tell a story. Above and beyond that, we wanna look at the savings rate. We talked about people being trapped at home, being given stimulus funds, not being able to spend money. We reached record levels of excess savings in the US. We're just about through that. And for the last year, we had negative net national savings, which is very negative for the economy. And it is a very strong predictor of, if not outright negative GDP growth, AKA recession, limited GDP growth going forward. So we just got the numbers for fourth quarter GDP came in at 3.3%. Everyone's, hey, that's pretty hot, that's awesome. Well, we also had for the last year, negative national savings, and those two things can't coexist. So retail sales, how are people spending money, household savings, and those GDP numbers. So looking for the inflation reads, the jobs numbers, and how households are reacting in terms of savings versus spending. We saw some really hot spending through the holidays. We have yet to see the numbers this month of amount of credit card debt increased through the holidays, and something that isn't picked up in that there's been a big change. Millennials and Gen Z, use credit cards less than the buy now, pay later stuff. And it's not picked up in that credit card debt. So we believe that through the holidays, a lot of that was done with pay later that isn't picked up in the data. So it's not a super easy thing to follow. So Jeb, I'm gonna give you a cheat sheet. Just show up here every week and show up to the live show on Wednesdays. The live show, we start the show with 15 to 20 minutes of charts and data telling you a summary of what happened in the last seven days. What do you need to know? So if you're in the market, even if you don't care about the questions and answers that we do for the next 40 minutes, show up for the first 15, 20 minutes or tune into the podcast. Jeb posts them here every week. Listen to that first 15 to 20 minutes because we're going to go through all the data that you need to know. Yeah, so that's every Wednesday, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Educated Home Buyer YouTube channel. So if you go check that out, you subscribe, you'll be able to get that information. But you know what I got from that, Josh, is there's a lot of information out there. It's constantly changing. Uh, it comes in a variety of different measures and has different impacts in, in how it's reported. And sometimes it can seem one way when, in fact, the market reads it another way. And so what I would say is worry less about that. Focus on what you can control if you're watching this going, you know, you guys didn't really even tell me where rates are going. How's that going to impact housing prices? What should I expect in 2024? Well, what I'll do is I'll link to our 2024 forecast in the description below if you're listening on audio. And if you're here on YouTube, you can check it out here. But we appreciate you taking the time to watch. We appreciate the support. We'll see you next time. Adios. Amigos. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. 
In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.